is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Very good afternoon to you on the Country Hour today where you will hear from the leader of one of the biggest dairy companies in Australia shortly. Lino Saputo is in the country announcing a major upgrade to one of their factories using equipment from the Mafra factory that was recently closed. We'll go through some of those details and also talk about how he sees Australian dairy, especially with a continually shrinking milk pool. Is it the country that he thought he was investing in when he bought Murray Goulburn, and even before that, Warnable Cheese and Butter. A lot of talk about today on the program. Not only that, though, we'll look into a curious case of massive stock theft. And, well, long after the floods for many of you, one area is still in flood. We'll speak to a farmer there on the program today. So a lot to get to. I'd love you to be involved in the program today. If you're a dairy farmer, if you're a Saputo supplier... I'd love to hear from you. 1300 977 What are you hoping for in terms of the company's commitment to Australia or maybe commitments on milk price? Would love to hear from you. 1300 977 You can send a text to 0467 842 Right now, though, let's get some rural news with Angus Verley today. G'day, Angus. G'day, Was In Western Australia, multiple records have been set as the state's biggest grain storage and handler... CBH has called an end to harvest. Growers in the state delivered a record 22.7 million tonnes of grain into the network, surpassing the 2021-22 receival total of 21.3 million tonnes. The company says almost 100 individual site records were set across the network, including 53 sites that set daily tonnage records and 45 sites that exceeded their previous record for total tonnes delivered in one harvest. And for the first time in the cooperative's 90-year history, CBH also received more than 600,000 tonnes in one day. Prices of exporting grain and other agricultural produce are on the way down. John Orr is the manager of Premium Grain Handlers, which buys grain from farmers and sends it to international markets in shipping containers. He says that is getting easier and a lot cheaper today than it was during the peak COVID years, when freight rates were through the roof. For example, last year, shipping grain to India was costing him $240 a tonne, compared to just $50 a tonne pre-COVID. Mr Orr says costs have come down, but they are still more expensive than they once were. Well, they're more like about $150 a tonne now. So that puts it in perspective, not nearly as low as we have been pre-COVID, but not nearly as high as it got to in the middle of those stimulus-related logistical problems. So it's still got some way to go. And as a result, it's difficult to fully reflect world prices back to farm level, but we're heading in that direction In Canberra, the wool industry's levy-funded marketing and research organisation, Australian Wool Innovation, has come under scrutiny at Senate Estimates for the decision to drop the amount of money the organisation spends on the wild dog problem. AWI Chair Jock Laurie was questioned by National Senator Bridget McKenzie about the cuts. We will continue with our investment in uh, wild dogs, although it has been pulled back over the last few years, obviously because of financial constraints in the company. So why have you 
ceased or reduced funding for the Wild Dog Control Initiative given the impacts they have on the national flock generally and therefore levy payers' businesses? Uh, we've got to manage the budget as we, as we best can. We'll try and distribute funds across all areas uh, appropriately and uh, identify and target the best areas for spend we possibly can. The National Farmers Federation and Norco Dairy Cooperative have joined forces to commission a National Farmer Wellbeing Survey. The five-minute survey gives information and details for the organisation to put to government for more assistance programs for farmer wellbeing. Norco Chief Executive Michael Hampson says it is important farmers take the time to fill in the survey this week. You know, I had a number of conversations with farmers in our region that suffered complete wipeouts of herds, dairies, fences, you know, their entire, you know, years of genetics of cows washed away in the river. And, and that's a really traumatic event. You know, I've still got burnt in memories when it was actually occurring, you know, in having a discussion with one of our farmers, just just feeling that, you know, their entire life was and their entire you know, work that they'd done and, and indeed the heritage of their family had been washed away and destroyed by these events. And they're incredibly traumatic and, and we need to make sure that we're looking after everyone and as a, as a country and this survey will better help certainly ourselves and in our partnership with the National Farmers Federation to inform policymakers what's needed when and importantly have packages ready to go so that they don't have to be developed once an issue occurs. Donkeys are traditionally used as herd guards, but a school in central west New South Wales has found a new use for them. Bria, a 10-month-old donkey, has made the trip from the last stop donkey program in the Hunter down to West Swilong High School to help students cope with anxiety and stress. Science and agriculture teacher Julian Maslin who had the idea after watching an episode of Landline on Guardian Donkeys, says it's been a big success. Yeah, it is, it is amazing. We had a, a tough um, summer, um, or tough 12 months lately, um, for you know, floods and bushfires and just hardship in the community. And it's just really nice to... Um, for, for students of all ages to come out and have a bit of relief, whether it's Year 12 students that just need a bit of a brain break through to kids that just need um, a, a general break from the hardships from, from home um, and even the classroom and just to be able to come out and, and spend some time. The tactile feeling of, of brushing the donkey, um, running the hand through its hair and um, just being around Bria has just been amazing. And was the kids think Bria is pretty good too? Here are the thoughts of Year 12 student Brianna Hanrahan. Being in Year 12, there's a lot of obviously stress and anxiety, I guess, sometimes. And like Bria just calms you down and makes you forget about everything and chill out a bit. So, yeah, it's been pretty good. Every, like you just walk out and she'll be doing her little prance around the yard and you just, just have to stop and smile at her. Like it's just what it is, I guess. Just her. Good on you, Brianna. Was that's it for rural news? Amazing to hear. I think we need a uh, assistance donkey in Team Country. Although I don't know where we'd put it around our ABC Radio studios. Thank you very much for that, Angus Verley, with rural news for you today. Let's get a little bit more serious now and talk about the future of dairy in Australia with one of the companies uh, that, uh, well, uh, the major players 
in not only this state but in the nation and indeed internationally. A shrinking milk pool in Australia means more stainless steel at dairy factories than milk being produced by farmers to fill it. It's making life difficult for Australia's largest dairy processors who are being forced to pay record prices to secure the supply of milk they need to keep their businesses operating efficiently. Canadian giant Saputo is one of those which has recently shut a factory in Mafra, Victoria, and now they're spending $20 million to move that equipment from Gippsland to Smithton in Tasmania. I spoke a short time ago to CEO and chairman of Saputo, Lino Saputo, about the difficulties in Australian dairy and his plans for Smithton. Uh, I thought it was a good time to come to Australia uh, this week, specifically uh, month of February, to uh, meet with our employees at uh, tour our facilities, look at the investments that we're making here uh, in the plants that uh, are going to be uh, increasing capacity, increasing yields, increasing their ability to be more effective and more efficient. So I'm doing plant tours and meeting with our employees while I'm here. And, and you're making a major announcement for the Tasmanian plant of Smithton. What are you going to do there? That's right. So uh, this afternoon I will be in uh, Smithton. Smithton uh, is receiving some capital dollars for us. We are moving some uh, production uh, products uh, from one of our closing facilities, the MAFRA plant, over to Smithton. It's a $20 million investment that is going to allow us to uh, produce and develop uh, some high-valued products for us. So will that mean more jobs for the Smithton plant? That will definitely mean more jobs uh, for the plant. Uh, permanent, contracted, and casual jobs will be uh, a positive consequence to the uh, to the community in Smithton, yes. Do you have an idea of, of numbers there? Uh, I, I will tell you that this is an addition to the existing facility. Uh, the actual numbers of, uh, of additional employees uh, is, uh, um, is uh, important enough for us uh, to be able to uh, commit to, uh, but I, I will not give you a number right now. Uh, and this is a direct result of the closing of the MAFRA plant by Saputo. This is the equipment from MAFRA that will go to Tasmania? That is correct, yes. So we are, we are closing down the MAFRA plant. Of course, you understand the situation uh, here in Australia relative to the, uh, uh, the dairy pool. It has been declining uh, over the course of the last three years. In fact, it's been declining since uh, my first trip out here in Australia in 2001. I remember the first time I came out to Australia, uh, the country was producing about eight, 11 billion litres of milk. Uh, when we acquired Warrnambool Cheese and Butter, I believe that number was somewhere around 9.5 billion, and now we're around 8.5 billion. Uh, and so the, the milk pool is shrinking, and it's important for us to right-size our network. So the macro closure is unfortunately one of the casualties. Can you talk about the difficulty then in operating in Australia at the moment with, as you say, nearly 5 billion litres less milk than when you first came out to Australia at the moment? Is that making it a particularly difficult country to operate in? Oh, well, look, coming out of the pandemic, the entire world, uh, every country that we operate in has had some challenges. So when you think about uh, labour as a starting point, then you think about supply chain, whether it's domestic or international, that has been a challenge. Uh, and then, of course, inflation and keeping up with inflationary pressures. Added to that here in Australia, there's one other element that the other platforms uh, don't have to contend with, and that's a shrinking milk pool. So it is a challenging environment. But we've always been a very proactive company. I mean, we've always been resilient. Uh, we're a 70-year-old business, 
and we've always taken the right decision at the right time. Uh, so the headwinds we're facing here in Australia do not phase us. We know that we have an opportunity to make our network more effective, more efficient. Uh, we're looking at value over volume here in Australia, and that's what our focus is. You've had to find efficiencies, find value, shut factories, move equipment, invest in other factories. Do you regret the decision to buy Murray Goulburn when it was failing as a business? Not at all. No, Murray Goulburn uh, uh, unfortunately had better days in the past, uh, uh, but the, the, the value of the brands that we inherited, the value of the talent, think about the expertise that's here in Australia, dairy processing expertise. Uh, you know, once we come out of our network optimization plan here in Australia, I will tell you that we will be the most effective and the most efficient dairy processor in this country. So absolutely no regrets at all. How committed is Saputo to Australia as a project? 100% committed to Australia and not just for the short term. We're committed for the long term. I mean, this is a, this is a country uh, that has uh, longstanding expertise in dairy. When you think about not just from the processing level, but at the farming level as well. And when we sell products from Australia into the emerging markets around the world, Australia has the best reputation for quality solids. Uh, and so there is no reason for us as a global entity, as a growing entity in the dairy space, to abandon this market. Uh, we have incredible products we're manufacturing with incredible people that are manufacturing them. So for us to abandon this market would be foolish. Then there comes the point of what's happening in Australia and the increased competition, which has seen the price paid to dairy farmers rise to record levels this season. Do you think there needs to be some more consolidation in the wider Australian dairy industry to make it a better operation for you as a business? Of course. And, you know, I've been saying this for years. And even before we bought Murray Goldburn, I was at a dairy conference and I sat there on a panel and uh, somebody asked me, what is the biggest weakness of the dairy industry? And I said that there is too much stainless steel for the amount of milk that is being produced. So there is too much production capacity in the country. We're not going to wait for our competitors to take action. We are proactive and we can lead the industry. And so we're making the changes we need to make to remain competitive, not just here in Australia, but to be competitive around the world. And that's what our focus is. That's what we're doing. And so, yes, uh, there will be some plant closures, but there is going to be heavy investments as well in other facilities to focus on higher-valued categories of dairy products that we can sell domestically and that we can sell around the world. So is MAFRA the end of the plant closures for Saputo, or do you foresee the need for more hard decisions in the future? Well, right now we feel very good about our network optimization plan. Uh, we believe that, that you know, the, the, the milk intake we have, we can hold on to that. Uh, so we feel very, very good about the announcements that we made relative to where we are going to end up in our network optimization. I suppose then that brings me to milk price. You've been paying dairy farmers a, a record milk price for Saputo in Australia this season. When we look towards next season, which is only a matter of months away in terms of announcements and so forth, do you think you'll need to pay a similar milk price to keep supply? Well, our, uh, our um, uh, procurement teams are looking at exactly what kind of strategy we're going to be coming out with um, when the new milk year opens up. Of course, we recognize that in order for us to maintain the milk we have, 
We're going to have to pay leading prices. We're going to have to pay competitive prices. Uh, so that's still in the works right now. And I'll leave that to the local team here to determine what is the right strategy for us to support our dairy farmers and to uh, continue to hold on, on to our milk shed. Is that the cycle you're in at the moment, though, having because there is such a shrinking milk pool, that's obviously going to make the, the milk price more competitive for companies like yourself to hold on to supply, yeah? Well, that's what we've seen for the last uh, two or three years, you know, and uh, everyone's got to compete to hold on to their milk. The Australian dairy industry, they're, they're meeting at a conference this week. A uh, lot of talk in the industry about how it moves forward, particularly after such a good year in terms of price that the industry is still shrinking. Do you have any advice or suggestions for the Australian dairy industry as it moves forward this year? Well, I think the Australian dairy industry has to get smarter about the way that they're processing their solids uh, as a whole. Uh, again, as I indicated, there's way too much stainless steel in, the, in, in, in this industry for the amount of milk that's being produced. Uh, and, um, look, we're doing the work that we need to do to make sure that we're running our plants at their optimum capacity utilization. And so our focus is to run our plants at 100% capacity at peak. That's what our focus is. That's the advice I would give my competitors. That is Lino Saputo, who is the head of or CEO and chairman of Saputo, Inc., speaking there about, well, their future in the country also their commitments to to the country, but also looking at things like milk price and so forth for next season. What did you make of what you heard there? I'd be interested in your thoughts today. 1300 977 222. If you'd like to call, you can text as well. 0467 842 722. We'll continue moving though on the country. Actually, just before we go, a couple of texts have come in. Uh, Neil says, I cannot believe this. I worked for Murray Goulburn for 15 years and Mafra was an old factory then. Moving that antiquated equipment that's a problem for the industry now it's the lack of investment in processing says neil interesting your thoughts coming in as well continue to bring them in zero four six seven eight four two seven double two tony sent a text asking if we could ask saputo about the lack of introduction of virtual fencing in victoria and new south wales compared to areas like tasmania sorry i didn't get that to you uh tony but that is an issue that we should pick up on the country hour in the coming weeks and months as well. We'll try and do that for you. Let's talk livestock theft right now on the program because the Central Victorian sheep producer has been left reeling after suffering what's being described as the worst stock theft in Victorian police memory. It's believed almost 700 ewes and lambs were stolen from a Logan property sometime between October 21 and February 1st. Farm Crime Liaison Officer Leading Senior Constable Dan O'Bree says the farmer discovered the theft when he was getting sheep in for shearing. Got a, got a report a week or so ago, Angus, that some sheep had been stolen, 700, um, out near Logan, followed up with the victim, and uh, he last counted them in October when he drenched them. He was in a mob of 1,800, and then has got them in again in January to shear them and discovered that out of his 1,800, he's 700 down. Um, they were in a 1,200-acre paddock. It was pretty rough, so, um, yeah, it's hard for him to gauge. It would have been hard for him to gauge that uh, the sheep were missing. And is, is this the big challenge with stock theft particularly, that, that just like this case, it can be months before someone realises what's happened and then in terms of investigating, you're, you're right behind the eight ball? Yeah, no, totally, mate. And it's hard, it's hard for a farmer to, you know, just cast his eye across the paddock and, yeah, and then by the time you do a proper count, get him in the yards and, and you do do a proper count and you realise that uh, the number's are down. Sometimes there's a, a bit of a tendency not to 
worry about it, maybe that they're in with the neighbours or they've got into another paddock and then, yeah, by the time the farmer realises that they're not dead and, and, and they're not in the neighbours and they're not with another mob, they sort of think it's too late and there's nothing we can do about it and they don't report it. 700 head, I think, close to 200 Merino ewes and close to 500 White Suffolk cross lambs. That's certainly the biggest stock theft I've ever heard of. Have you ever come across anything on this scale before? No, mate, this is the biggest one we've heard of. We've heard of, you know, hundreds and two hundreds, and, um, but this is, this is massive, yeah. Has the farmer talked a total value of what they may have been worth? Oh, we're looking somewhere around 140000 That's a lot of money. It is, yeah. I mean, if you took that out of anyone's livelihood over a 12-month period, it'd be pretty devastating. How's the farmer coping? He's upset, obviously. Um, he's questioning, you know, where they could be. Has he done anything wrong? Uh, you know, we've checked fences. We've checked paddocks. You know, if they'd have got out, the neighbours would um, would have told him that that many, uh, if they were dead in the paddock, you know, you'd see them. Yeah, so, no, he's, as you can understand, he's, he's a little bit upset about the whole thing. Is there any physical evidence of, of how they may have actually pulled this off? Uh, not stage, no. We believe that they would have been walked off the property. It'd be unlikely that they'd use the victim's yards. Um, so, yeah, mate, once they get off the property, and who knows? So, yeah, we're still looking around and we're hoping someone may have seen something. You know, it would have taken a couple of four-decker trucks or, or, a, or a B-double or something like that to shift them. Um, you could maybe assume that it was done in the, in the cover of darkness. Um, so, you know, if anyone saw something like that around it, Strange hours of the night, around, you know, December, January, well, you know, we'd love to hear from them. Okay, so you reckon walked off the property, down the road into maybe a set of temporary yards and then onto trucks? It's been well planned, there's no doubt about that, and without saying for certain, something along those lines, we believe, has happened, yeah. So that makes it sound like a pretty pretty slick sort of operation. Yeah, that is. It's got to be someone that... Very good at handling sheep and uh, has got access to uh, the trucks and, and is able to take them somewhere. I saw some reporting that perhaps there was a suspicion they'd been taken interstate. Is that what you're thinking? Could be, yeah. It, 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 look, anything's possible. Could have been taken in New South Wales or South Australia or, you know, really Victoria's a pretty small state and you can move them four or five hours. You can be a fair, fair way away from uh, where they were. And what are the prospects of, I, I guess, well, uh, recovering the sheep, or if not recovering them, at least finding the offenders and prosecuting? Because anecdotally, it seems to be there seem to be pretty low odds of that happening. Yeah, no, it, it's it's very hard to uh, solve something that's so historic, I suppose. But who knows? If we can just get little bits of info, like um, you know, any other farmers that maybe sheep have sheep lost or missing sheep in that area let us know and it just might piece together something that we can start looking or yeah um point us in the right direction or give us somewhere to start but yeah look it is it is very hard to solve but the more info we get the more chance we have of uh finding them is there a general trend in terms of stock theft occurrences i mean livestock prices have come back off their highs has that meant theft has also dropped off because anecdotally again it doesn't seem that it is no, yeah, I don't think it's dropped off. I, I haven't got the stats, mate, but it doesn't appear to me that it's uh, it's steadied off any. Uh, prices might be down, but they're still still uh, handy to have in their paddocks for these thieves, I suppose. 
That's Farm Crime Liaison Officer Leading Senior Constable Dan O'Bree with Victoria Police speaking with Angus Verley. What do you make of that? Have, have you seen any drop-off in farm crime or is it still something that worries you where you are? Are you still seeing instances of it? You can certainly send us a text or give us a call. 0467 842 722 to text. Many of you have sent texts in in regards to Lino Saputo and what he's saying about the future of of dairy in Australia and how that company's performing. And just so you know, a bit of a style note change. It's Lino Saputo now, or Lino A. Saputo. There is no junior anymore on the name when we're referring to Mr. Saputo. These texts coming in, Mr. Pesuto, uh, Mr. Saputo needs a reality check about what it takes to keep Australian dairy industry alive. He needs to stop talking about plant optimization and start putting farmers first and paying a profitable milk price long-term. Saputo keeps changing its tail regarding supplier relations, says that text message. Another one, though, says, I 100% agree with Lino. Milk pool is declining each year, and there are far too many companies for the amount of farms left. And also, yes, there are record milk prices, but it needs to be uh, because of the cost of producing milk, which has skyrocketed. It can't fall back now. Interesting thoughts coming in on the text line. You continue can continue to get them in 0467-842-722. Weather report on the way right now, though. Let's find out what's making regional news headlines with Courtney Howe again today. Good afternoon, Courtney. Good afternoon, Warwick. An Indigenous elder in southwest Victoria is calling for more cultural and controlled burning to prevent a tragedy like Ash Wednesday in the future. Today marks 40 years since the Ash Wednesday bushfires swept across Victoria and South Australia, claiming 75 lives. Peak Wurrung elder Uncle Rob Lowe says he used to help his grandpa and uncles do controlled burning on the mission and wants those practices reinstated to protect lives and the environment into the future. Two males have been charged following two robberies across Horsham on Tuesday afternoon. It's alleged the pair threatened a man on Roberts Avenue before demanding his mobile phone about half past 12. After the victim refused to hand it over, the offenders fled empty-handed. It's alleged they then continued on to May Park, Darlet Street and threatened two teenagers before stealing a necklace and fleeing the scene. An 18-year-old man and a 17-year-old boy have been charged with robbery, attempted robbery, assault with intent to rob and common law assault. The 18-year-old man has been bailed to appear in the Horsham's Magistrates Court next month and the 17-year-old will face the Children's Court. Victorians are bracing for a short but intense heat wave, with some communities in the state's north reaching temperatures into the 40s. After a very hot night, a cool change will bring relief tomorrow evening with a slight chance of a thunderstorm. The Bureau of Meteorology says there may be extreme fire danger in some districts. Injustices experienced by Indigenous people in Victoria's child protection and criminal justice systems will be the focus of a series of discussions run by the Rook Justice Commission in Portland today. The Commission says evidence collected at the sessions will help form recommendations to the state government to help right the wrongs of the past. And Major Road Projects Victoria says there will not be access to the Bogon High Plains Road near Falls Creek next month, as originally hoped, with the aim to now have it open before the snow season starts. Works to remove the debris from the 100-metre-wide landslide on the road have been impacted by recent weather events, including earth tremors. And that's the latest in regional news for this afternoon, Warwick. Thanks very much for that, Courtney. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Uh, text messages coming in. Not a lot of sympathy on that sheep theft, by the way. Uh, and we're 
we might be assuming a bit here uh, because the report saying it believes almost 700 ewes and lambs were stolen from a Logan property sometime between October 21 and February 1st. And many of you are taking that information to say that the mob was not checked at all. Uh I'm not sure if we have that info or if we can say that, but these are some of your thoughts coming in. Joe says, Hi, 15 million lambs are lost every year in Australia due to weather exposure and the fact that farmers are not around when ewes are giving birth. Why wasn't these? Why weren't these stock checked sooner? Three months is too long. It's not only an issue... Um, it's not only an issue of opportunistic theft, it's an animal welfare issue too, says Joe. And this one says $140,000 would pay for a lot of years of one-day-a-week stock checks by sheep husbandry contractors. Maybe big landholders need to look at their business models too. There are some of the texts coming in at the moment as well. Chris, though, saying, Hi, Warwick, it's no use ringing the police if there is any suspicious activity going on. They don't bother turning up, says another text as well. So you can keep those coming. We can discuss this together, 0467 842722. Um, just getting a note from Angus who did that interview saying that mob was checked intermittently but it was a mob of 1800 overall in a big paddock so it wasn't detected that so many sheep had been gone um there's just a little bit of information for you i don't know how that sits with you but that's up to you 0467 842 722 if you'd like to send us a text uh let's go to the weather bureau and find out what's happening weather wise around our state as it gets mighty warm outside for many of you particularly those in the north michael efron is a senior forecaster with the bureau of meteorology g'day michael g'day Warren. how's it looking around victoria today yeah, as you said, uh, very warm conditions with northerly winds across the state. So uh, well and truly into uh, the 30s at the moment. In the north and northwest, uh, Mildura 36, uh, similar conditions around Oyen, uh, Walpi up Swan Hill, uh, Warrantnabil, Horsham as well. So just some patchy high cloud moving across from the west at the moment. I think it'll stay dry, but potentially some... Uh, high base shower thunderstorm activity pushing into the southwest later this afternoon and maybe around the central coast tonight. But uh, given it is high base, we won't see too much getting uh, into the gauges. There is a heatwave warning out for parts of the central district as well as uh, Gippsland for uh, the next couple of days. And through the rest of today, I think we'll see the, the northerly winds easing, so relatively light winds uh, tonight. But before that, we will see uh, those temperatures increasing a bit more, getting up to 41 uh, this afternoon at Mildura, 39 at Horsham, 38 at Echuca, 37 for Wangaratta and Hamilton, and also uh, further south and east, uh, Warrnambool, 35, Ballarat, 35, sail up to 36 degrees, so pretty much extending uh, throughout today. And then we're looking at very warm conditions overnight uh, tonight as well with those uh, northerly winds redeveloping, so only getting down to uh, the high teens or low 20s, maybe mid-20s in some parts overnight. And then uh, those northerly winds freshening throughout the morning, particularly through uh, the central district and into the north-central district as well. So in terms of uh, fire weather, we currently have a high rating uh, forecast for most districts, but people should check uh, this afternoon. We may see uh, some of those districts getting into the extreme category. So be aware of uh, changing forecasts there with uh, those gusty winds in, in some parts on Friday. In terms of temperatures, looking at 
uh, generally the mid to high 30s or uh, low 40s, uh, apart from the southwest, so Mildura up to 43, Swan Hill 42, Horsham 38, uh, Shepparton 41, Seymour 41, Wangaratta 39, but uh, in the southwest, Warrnambool 27, Hamilton 33, uh, Sale up to 39. So uh, pretty hot day across the state. Uh, we do see the change pushing into the southwest or far southwest during the late morning and then uh, moving slowly east. So uh, the, the rest of uh, western Victoria in the afternoon and then central parts in the far northwest uh, during the early evening. And we will see um, milder southwesterly winds developing behind that change and uh, potentially some high base showers and storms over a central, uh, maybe southwestern and also eastern parts. But again, not too much uh, getting into the gauges. And then uh, as we push into the weekend, we see that change moving slowly east. So looking at a pretty warm day over the northeast, with that change moving through uh, Saturday afternoon, but elsewhere a lot cooler temperatures through the south and southwest around the low to mid-20s, uh, mid to high 20s or low 30s across the north, but uh, somewhere like uh, Albury-Wodonga still expecting 33. I think through uh, parts of eastern Victoria there will also be some uh, shower and thunderstorm activity on Saturday afternoon, uh, especially about the ranges, but again, not too much getting into the gauges. Heading into Sunday, we do see... Uh, quite settled conditions with a high-pressure ridge extending from the west. So partly cloudy skies in the south, sunny across the north, uh, temperatures in the south around uh, the mid to high 20s and low to mid 30s across the north. And then uh, looking ahead to next week, uh, on Monday, pretty similar conditions, not too much changing in temperature from Sunday. On Tuesday, we do see another uh, stronger high-pressure system developing south of the bite. So that will bring some stronger southerly winds across the state. So southern parts do see temperatures back at around 20 to 24 degrees, partly cloudy skies across the north, sunny conditions, temperatures in the high 20s or low 30s. And then looking ahead uh, to next Wednesday, we see uh, the winds starting to turn more easterly. So it does uh, begin to warm up again, looking at the mid to high 20s in the south and low to mid 30s across the north, but a theme of much of the next week is uh, the lack of rainfall. We're not looking at anything significant, uh, but we do have uh, some pretty warm days uh, with today and tomorrow, uh, the focus of uh, the hot weather. Yeah, and I've got Michael Efron's with you, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau. Bob's asking for a bit of a... uh uh, personalised weather report, just saying, can you ask a weather person about uh, lightning and the possibility of dry lightning, particularly in the in the far northwest? Have you got any information for Bob there? Yeah, so in terms of uh, the northwest, the good news is that it, it looks like uh, we won't see uh, any shower thunderstorm activity uh, in that area. So uh, it looks like it will be confined to, to southern and uh, eastern parts the state over the next few days. There you go, Bob. Some good news on the weather report, I'm assuming, anyway. I'm not imagining people don't want dry lightning wherever they are, particularly with the amount of grass growth around. Uh, Michael, any warnings we need to be aware of right now? Yeah, so the, the heatwave warning current for uh, Central District and Gippsland, uh, but do keep an eye out for potential fire weather warnings um, with those forecasts being updated through this afternoon. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time.
Thanks, Warwick. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, taking you through the full forecast there and what to look out for. You're listening to The Country Air. It's 20 to 1 right now. Uh, let's go just over the border because floodwater is continuing to make its way along the Great Darling Anna Branch in southern New South Wales. Gus White farms at Wyndham Station and he says that while it's causing a few challenges, they'll be outweighed by the long-term benefits on his property. Every sort of day we seem to be almost losing a road of of access into our property, um, and so I'm not sure. It, look, it wouldn't surprise me if in a, in a week we'd be boating, I think. From what I've heard, the peak's a bit slow, so I reckon it might be a couple of weeks before it peaks at home, and it could get quite a lot higher, Kelly. So, you know, um, it's covering a lot of country, but it, and it'll be fantastic. Short-term convenience for a long-term fantastic gain. Your shearing shed and ram paddock is surrounded by water. What kind of impacts that having on your day-to-day farming operations? Like at the moment, we're shearing. However, we're shearing in a neighbour's shed who's on the edge of um, Travellers Lake, which is part of the the, the Anabranch Lake system, and it's flooding, so half his yards are, are full of water. Um, but we can still get in here and have access here, and that's important because we've got... <coughs> two properties, and we don't have access to any of those wool sheds at the moment. Will you have enough land for all of the livestock that you've got? Yeah, we've planned that out. So we've, we have got plenty of room. and um, there's, It's been a good year, so there's lots of feed around. So we've been able to rest some paddocks. So there's there's paddocks up on high land that where they're out of harm's way. So all our stock are being put in paddocks where they're not going to be, you know, impacted by floodwaters or anything like that. So all that's been planned out, Kelly, pretty simple. And the logistics of getting shearers to these shearing sheds, is that still a reasonably straightforward exercise? Yeah, no. (laughs) So they've got to drive a bit over 40 kilometres from our huts, which is not ideal. So they've got a fair drive. It's difficult getting shearers anyway, but when, when you put a few complexities in it, like we're shearing another shed that hasn't been used for 15 years and you know, we're extremely grateful for the neighbour to allow us to use his shed, and it's a pretty good shed, bloody good shed, really. It's just the change, isn't it, from walking 200 metres to the wool shed to uh, driving 40 kilometres. When was the last time you had this much water around Wyndham Station? We haven't since we've owned Wyndham. Um, so, <clears throat> I would, like, from what we've been told, this will be the biggest flood since 1976. It won't be as big as 1976. So what's that, 46 years, 47 years? And it will be. It's a comparable size to 1974, which is, although it was a big flood in the Murray, it wasn't as big a flood in the Anabranch. So it'll still inundate a lot of country and um, cause some access problems. Are you needing to um, put levies around any of the major assets on the farm? We're pretty lucky there. As with any homestead that's been built, for a substantial number of years alongside a river, they're up on a hill or up on an area that doesn't usually get inundated. Um, So there's no levy banks around any of that infrastructure required. At the moment, we don't foresee. Like I said, it's just really access issues and, and, you know, parking vehicles on sort of either side of the river so we can access them via a boat. The Bureau of Meteorology is issuing flood warnings for the Darling River. What do you make of uh, there being no 
messaging for the Anna Branch? I think flood warnings should be extended to the Anna Branch. It's just that while the landholders along the Anna Branch are aware of the flooding and, and keep in good communication and talking to their neighbours and <clears throat> accessing data, a recreational fisherman who just wants to come up with their family for the weekend may not be aware that the Anna Branch is in flood. And when it's in flood, there are some areas that are quite dangerous and it's <clears throat> we're not recommending for people to come up at the moment and just wait until the flood peak um, goes past and the water starts going down for a number of reasons. A, the rivers could be dangerous because there's lots of current, but B, yabbies aren't running at the moment. They don't when the flood, when the water's going up. They usually only start running when the water goes down. So not only will it, they potentially be at risk when they come up here, they might, they might go home with, you know, empty caches of yabbies. And despite all of the challenges the flooding is causing, you touched on the fact that earlier you seem to be focusing on the long-term positive impacts that it's going to create. Why is that the case? I just know that the impacts are extremely positive. And a few years ago, Kelly, we were probably having a similar discussion about bloody dust norms and no rain. So, you know, Australia being a land of extremes, I'd much rather floods than, than dust. I'm the sort of person that likes to see positives and and so I just choose to live my life and, and look at those positives and certainly with a flood you just think my goodness this is fantastic and for the wildlife the bird life the, the frogs the fish um, and then fill the soil profile so that we can you can budget for income for the next two or three years because that's the benefits of a flood brings to our part of the world. Are you already considering cropping land on the floodplain or dry lake beds? You know that that's into the future. I actually don't spend too much of my time thinking about that because, you know, in the in the 70s, our lake spent almost eight years continuous with water in them. You know, there's plenty of forecasters saying that this is the start of a flooding series and not the end of it. So, you know, you don't you don't count your chickens. You just know that it's going to be there for when it when it dries out though, Kelly. You don't count your chickens. I love that. Gus White from Wyndham Station on the great Darling Anna Branch. He was speaking there to Kelly Hollingworth about the floodwaters that are still moving their way down the Anna Branch as well. You thought we'd finish talking about floods. There's still more to chat about yet. You're listening to The Country Hour. Some of your texts still coming in. Uh, many still having your say on those sheep. Um, Dave is actually saying sheep observation. This is a good case for using a drone for recording numbers as well. Can automatically count the numbers for you using drone technology. Dave, that would be interesting. Thank you for sending that text as well. Uh, Kevin saying, wouldn't these stolen sheep be earmarked, making them harder to sell? Kevin, I, I won't give ideas on how to get around the, the system as it stands on radio, but it is certainly one interesting part where authorities can do some work and you hope they're doing work there. And Brett on the weather report saying, a heat waves above normal temperatures for at least three or four days. Today and tomorrow's temperatures are typical for this time of year and hardly a heat wave. What an exaggeration, says Brett. Brett, we got a great explanation on why this heatwave warning is around, particularly around what it means with the overnight temperatures not getting that low, how that plays into it, not just the headline figures during the day as well. You can have a listen to that. If you still disagree, that's completely fine with it by me. It's a bureau thing. It's there where the report details 
I don't need to spend a lot of time complaining about that. But if you disagree, we still love your feedback on the program. And if you don't want to text, you can always email us, countryhour at abc.net.au. Let's head to an interesting report looking at agriculture for the year ahead. 2022 was a year of records, whether it be for prices across a whole range of commodities or for the cost of inputs going into to farming businesses as well. Certainly the issue of labour had a lot to say too. Looking at all of this and more in what it means for 2023, Rabobank have released their agri- Australia Agribusiness Outlook for 2023. And they say, although 2022 had high and often record prices and good production volumes, uh, then that's left the nation's farm sector in a healthy position for this year ahead. Jane McNaughton's talking here to report lead author uh, Rabo Research General Manager Australia and New Zealand Stefan Vogel about the year ahead and some of the key factors that are worth noting. Biggest question mark is always what happens in those times of economic headwinds. So clearly, if you look around the world, interest rates are increasing, inflation is high, and we have a lot of concerns around the growth of uh, the economy in many places of the world. And sheep meat is just a little bit more expensive than uh, many other meat types, which usually means if you are a consumer and you have less money in your pocket because your mortgage is more expensive, everything else is more expensive, you try and find a way to save. So that is one of the headwinds we need to monitor closely throughout the year. Will we see consumers maybe shifting away from some of the consumption of sheep meat and go for something cheaper, which would maybe hurt our exports? But for now, we're rather optimistic on the volume and also that we find a way to export it into markets that uh, still pay a price for it. There's also a lot of geopolitical risks around what's been going on in Ukraine. So what do you predict for this year as far as that context goes? Well, if you look at the geopolitical context, clearly 2022 and a lot of the high prices we have seen, be it on the output pies, for example, the high grain prices, that was coming not so much from, well, what happened in Australia, but it clearly happened or was related to what happens in the global market. We have uh, Russia and Ukraine when they started the war almost a year ago, uh, and Russia invaded Ukraine. We have seen that the market for grains were going to record territories in global pricing terms just because Russia-Ukraine combined export about 30% of the world's wheat. Luckily for the world's food supply, both countries are exporting actually excellent volumes, Ukraine not back to the very strong levels of last year, but given they are in wartime, they're doing a fantastic job moving goods. Nevertheless, the margins for the farmers are terribly low. I mean, their input costs, their fertilizer costs, everything is as high as it is over here in Australia. But the Ukrainian farmer basically needs to look at a scenario where his output prices are rather low because transporting it into a war zone is very costly and very risky. So he's not making good money, which uh, is hurting production also for 23. So we're looking into 23 from a geopolitical angle. The war in Ukraine will continue. We hopefully don't see too much of an excitement there in terms of escalation, and we're monitoring closely. But the region is important for wheat and wheat pricing, but it's also important for fertilizer and the fertilizer pricing. And China has done a U-turn on its zero COVID policy. Do you think that China's economy opening back up will be beneficial for Australian producers? We really hope so. I mean, if you look at China, a massive market for many of our commodities. Uh, We're exporting clearly as Australia many of our products to the world market, given that we have a rather small population. The overall volume of goods that needs to go to the world market is big. And the share of China's uh, appetite in those exports is rather strong. So with that, uh, what happens in the economy is very important for us. And uh, if you think that was one of the few countries in the world 
that was going with a zero policy around COVID cases. So as soon as a case broke out, lockdown, nobody moves, nobody travels, hurting the economy also from that angle. So we hope that the, the restriction removals on COVID cases is allowing the industry to do a bit better. And when the industry is doing a bit better, people should have a little bit more money in their pockets. When they have a little bit more money in the pockets and they're walking outside, they probably eat outside. So we are hoping that for the consumption for some of the goods we're shipping there, be it meat, be it dairy products, that it is beneficial. But also if we're looking at uh, products like wool, clearly a lot of our wool here needs to go to China for the processing and uh, with that, we're hoping that also that is continuing to be rather beneficial that uh, they have changed their course on COVID. You mentioned earlier fertiliser prices in Ukraine. That was a massive issue for Victorian farmers over the last few months as well. Are fertiliser prices going to remain high? Well, um, there are a couple of good news coming from the fertilizer market. But clearly, first of all, if you look back, um, the market of fertilizers has been an, ex an exciting one, not only for the last 12 months, but actually for the last two years. Uh, with COVID and a lot of the lockdowns, a lot of the uh, restrictions in the port area, a lot of logistics and supply chain issues, we have seen prices for fertilizer already rise throughout 2021, a lot just because of those COVID issues. And now we are going into a second phase in 2022, where all of the uh, war, because uh, the region, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, uh, are all exporting rather strong volume. So about 40% of the world's potash is coming from Belarus and Russia combined. That's a lot of volume. Uh, also for nitrogen fertilizers, for phosphates, um, they are having a market share around 15 to 20% of the world's trade. So that's a sizable volume for some of those products. And there was a lot of concern. The good news right now is actually prices have come down from the highs, but they're unfortunately still well above what we were used to two years, three years, four years ago. So we have to plan in 2023 with prices well above what we have been used to normally. But we don't think we will go back to these all-time highs. And the last little price shocker that we got to the upside was late last year around natural gas prices in Europe. So when you produce urea, one of the uh, really important nitrogen fertilizers, you need natural gas as the key input. And uh, those prices in Europe have gone completely through the roof. And I'm not talking 20%, 30% up. They have not only doubled, they have three-folded, four-folded, five-folded, depending on the country you were in. So a lot of the producers had shown down production for fertilizers because they said, I cannot recoup a margin at those cost levels. What they then have done is uh, gas prices collapsed in Europe. And that's really good news for us. And there is one major reason for it, and that is it was a warm winter in the region and a lot of the private households have not turned on the heat as much as they would have in a cold winter, and that has saved a lot of gas. So with that, supplies are okay in Europe, prices have collapsed. We don't think prices will go back anytime soon. So that's good news for the fertilizers. But on the way down, if you look at global pricing, they probably rather soon find a floor because we're hitting now the Northern Hemisphere's growing season. So these guys getting out of winter in the US, in Europe, which means planting of corn uh, and other spring crops, but also all of that winter grain like winter wheat or winter canola in, in Europe, these crops will wake up and the farmer will have to apply some fertilizer. So we think demand will come rather back strong here in the next couple of weeks. So we're probably going to find globally a bit of a floor rather soon. Local prices are sometimes a bit slower to follow the global market just because we're importing a lot of uh, fertilizer from the world market, which means it just takes a little longer until we follow completely the global pricing. That is Stefan Vogel from Rubbo Research speaking there to Jane McNaughton. So that's looking ahead. Let's look at the now. Markets next.
A few to get through. Let's start in Bansdale today. G'day, Brendan Fletcher. G'day, Warwick. Numbers were similar at 204, with a couple of orders returning to the buying group in a dearer market in places. Quality was limited, with cows representing half of the sale. Secondary young cattle sold to stronger restocking competition. Grown steers and heifers improved slightly. Manufacturing steers sold firm. Cows sold five cents dearer, and heavy bulls gained five. The handful of vealers were lacking finish and sold from 380 to 420. Yearling heifers sold mostly to restockers from 308 to 330. Grown steers and bullocks 330 to 360. Heavy grown heifers 290 to 333. Manufacturing steers 248 to 335. Most light and medium weight cows 218 to 296. Heavyweights 258 to 312. Heavy bulls 270 to 312. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks, Brendan. Let's go to Hamilton Sheep and Lambs with Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Numbers came back to 9,218 at Hamilton this week, a decrease of 7,135. The quality on offer was good to plain, with less weight at the top end, together with less merino sheep on offer this week. All the regular processes were in attendance and all were active throughout the sale. However, despite the good attendance, the market was softer by $30 per head and more in places over most grades. Heavy crossbred ewes made to $112, well-covered merino ewes to $90 and the very good weathers topped out at $120 with the general run of mutton making between $220 and $300 cents a kilo. Merino mutton to average $260 to $320. The rams, the terminal size made to $48 and the merinos topped out at $32. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Thanks very much, Chris. Lucky last is Wagga Lambs with Leanne Dax. Good afternoon, Leanne. Good afternoon. Just over 30,000 lambs and 16,000 sheep sold to a smaller group of buyers. Quality across trade and heavy categories was quite good, with some exceptional supersized lambs along the way. Trade lambs over with a highlight this week, with buyers stepping up to secure supplies, lifting rates $8 to $10 for the better end. 21 to 24 kilo, 175 to 214, averaging... 805 to 830 cents a kilogram carcass weight 25 to 26 205 to 223 26 to 30 were firmed to a few dollars dearer making from 214 to 245 over 30 kilos jump 5 245 to 300 dollars averaging 789 cents a kilogram carcass weight merino lambs 108 to 197 store lambs 70 dollars to 135 merino hoggets 95 dollars to 158 heavy crossbred hoggets sold up to 165 heavy sheep are selling from 80 dollars to 140 and with the sheep sale still in progress, I'm Leanne Ducks, MLA. Thanks very much for that, Leanne. Just before we go on the Country Hour, if you want to read about Lino Saputo's plans for Australia, that massive sheep theft in Victoria, or even what's happening with avian flu, big story we've been covering here, you can do that right now at abc.net.au slash rural. Catch you tomorrow.